Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us. That means if you've never been to church, if you walked away from church, or have struggled to find a church home, we were started for you. For more information about Collective and how to join us on a Sunday morning, please head to www.mycollective.church. So I don't think there's a better way to start today than this. Can we go ahead and play that video? Capitals, you've had years of frustration, but here is the grandest celebration. You get to hoist the Stanley Cup. Alex Ovechkin, it's your honor. Come on up. DC pain right there. I like wept like a baby. I don't even know. Uh, and honestly, this has nothing to do with the sermon. I just know that as a Washington and Baltimore area fan, I don't know if I'll ever get another moment like that. So I wanted to share that with you guys. So we'll post it on Facebook later. You can just watch it over and over and over again if you want. So every once in a while, a story goes viral that shows how good people can be. And a few weeks ago, a story about a young woman in need and the stranger who stepped up to help started making, making its rounds on the internet. While waiting to board a flight, a young woman named Delilah Cassidy was informed by an American airline agent that the airline had instituted a new policy which would add a fee to any bag, including her carry-on. Now, normally this wouldn't be an issue for Delilah, but they were not able to take cash and she had just returned from Europe, so her credit cards weren't activated. In order to not miss her flight while stepping out of line and calling her bank, she decided to consolidate both her bags into one. When the agent put her suitcase on the scale, she was over the 50-pound limit, and they said they had to charge her a $50 fee. Without the ability to pay, the airline agent actually told her that she was going to have to miss her flight and head back to the ticket counter to pay down there. She began to plead with the desk agent to let her board her flight and go home, but they were at a stalemate. While the two went back and forth, the line continued to grow, and Delilah was a moment away from giving up when a man walked up and just asked, how much is it? Agent told him it was $50, so he said, I've got it. Now, Delilah tried to convince the man not to worry about it, but she insisted. He handed the agent his card as the other American Airlines employees who were working at the adjacent desk stood in silence, shocked by the man's generosity. They swiped the card, and he and Delilah headed toward their terminal. As Delilah was sitting in her seat, she was weeping about the generosity of this stranger, so she decided to share the story online, including a picture of the man who saved the day. And here's the picture. So immediately after posting the picture, people began to point out that that man was Jermaine Gresham, tight end for the Arizona Cardinals. And the story blew up, and people began to seek out Gresham, who's not on social media, so he had no idea what had happened. But people began to seek him out to try and interview him, to ask him why he would help Delilah, even though they were both strangers. And so Gresham said in an interview that he heard the agent tell Delilah that she would have to go back to the counter and would miss her flight. And Gresham thought, I'm not going to let that happen. He said, I have my wallet in my pocket, and I was like, here, just swipe the card, it's 50 bucks, catch a flight, there's not much to it. He said he was just doing what he, what he felt was right, what he hoped anybody would have done. And he finished one interview by saying, you see, somebody in distress, just help them out, nothing more and nothing less. And this is an awesome story. This guy stepped up to help when he didn't have to. Jermaine Gresham is a good guy, he's a good person, he's a good neighbor, he's a good 
Yeah, some of you are twitching because you're waiting for me to say, he's a good Samaritan, right? And today we're in week two of our series on parables called Storyteller. And the word parable actually comes from the Greek word parabola, which literally translates to to come alongside or to see alongside. And that's why Jesus told these stories, these parables, is so that people could come alongside Jesus in his teaching, so people could see alongside what he was trying to show other people. And Jesus told many parables, but this one is quite possibly the most famous outside of the church, outside of the walls of the church. And so today we're talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, many of you have heard this story before, but I'm guessing that there are a lot of people here that didn't actually know that this was from the Bible, or more specifically, that it's actually a teaching from Jesus. Because the phrase Good Samaritan has bled out of the church and into the rest of the world. The name has been used for a number of charitable organizations, including the Samaritan's Purse and Sisters of the Good Samaritan. The name Good Samaritan Hospital is used on a number of hospitals all over the world. And there's even a Good Samaritan law that offers legal protection to people who give reasonable assistance to those who are or who they believe to be injured, ill, in peril, or otherwise incapacitated. And can I make just a quick side note? Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, whether you believe in God or not, there's something really powerful about the fact that Jesus told a story a few thousand years ago, and we can still see the impact today inside and outside of the church. Another quick side note, especially if you're struggling with the legitimacy of Jesus, what other religious leader has shaped the world in the same way that Jesus has? And to be honest, it's a trick question because none of them have shaped it the way that Jesus has. It was, if Jesus wasn't different, if Jesus wasn't special, if Jesus wasn't influential, his stories and his teaching would have died when he did, or certainly would have died when his first set of followers died as well, but that's not the case. The way that Jesus lived, the way that he taught, the things that he valued have forever impacted this world, and no other religious leader can say that. And so the reason why today we can tell a story about the Good Samaritan and something that we're familiar with isn't always necessarily because of Jesus, but because his teaching continued to live and breathe throughout the last 2,000 years. So let's get to this parable. The parable of the Good Samaritan actually starts with an interaction between Jesus and a teacher of the law. Now think of this guy as kind of a religious lawyer. And before Jesus ever shares this story, before Jesus ever shares this parable, he answers two questions from the lawyer. And these two questions are incredibly important, not just to the lawyer, but to us as well. And this is how the story begins, starting in Luke 10, verse 25. It says this, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so the catalyst for this whole story, for this parable that he's about to tell, is this lawyer asking the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And while this might seem like an innocent question, it's actually an attempt to trap Jesus. Last week, we talked about how the shepherd will leave the 99 sheep to go pursue the one. And the, the story was actually told in response to religious people being upset that Jesus spent time with sinners. And Jesus is driving the religious leaders of his day absolutely mad. And so everything that they're trying to do is to attack him and to get him to, to discredit himself and to trap him in his own words. And so while the lawyer asks the questions, there's not really an innocent way that he's asking. He's trying to trap Jesus and trying to get him to prove that maybe he's not the son of God. So that's the context of why he asks. And so the Lord asks, what must I do to be saved, to have my sins forgiven, to know that I'm connected to God? What boxes do I need to check off? Tell me what I need to do to go to heaven. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, hopefully the question of what must I do sets off some alarms in your head. Because right off the bat, the lawyer asks the wrong question. Or at least he asks it in the wrong way, because there's nothing that we can do to inherit eternal life. 
And we say this all the time at Collective. We can't do anything to earn God's love or affection, and we can't do anything to be good enough. That's what grace is all about. But for a lot of people, including this lawyer, this is kind of the default way of living. It's the philosophy of, I'm just going to try and be a good person. And you've heard that before. And maybe some of you have even said it before. I'm just going to try and be a good person. What happens is we try to do more good stuff than bad stuff with the hopes that the scales of justice tip in our favor. We begin to compare our goodness with others. And we say, I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as that guy. Of all the places I've ever lived, I've never seen so many cars with bumper stickers on them than here. People love bumper stickers in Frederick, and they love that other people know their thoughts and opinions, because that's really why we put bumper stickers on our car. So the other day, I was driving through downtown, and I saw a bumper sticker that said, be a good person. And when I saw that, I thought to myself, that seems like the overarching religion that a lot of people embrace. And here's the thing. I am all for being a good person. I, I wish we would all strive to be better people. I think this world would be a better place if we decided that we would be good people. And that's a great idea. But when it comes to practically living that out, it gets a lot messier. Because we start having these little arguments of what exactly is good. We start arguing what defines a person. And who is good compared to whom? Who is bad? What does bad mean? And it all seems like a good idea, but it actually isn't a firm footing for a way to live your life. And the Bible fortunately teaches us the exact opposite of that philosophy. See, what Christianity is all about is not be a good person and hope for the best. It's not about be a good person and hope it all plans out in the end. Christianity is not about doing good things so that you can earn or inherit eternal life. Christianity is ultimately about Jesus doing for you what you could never in a million years do for yourself. And so this lawyer's perspective, as twisted as it is, represents a lot of the perspectives that we have. Like, we believe that we have to earn God's favor, favor through our good behaviors. But Jesus actually comes to blow that whole paradigm up, to blow up that perspective. Jesus actually came to accomplish for us what we could never do for ourselves. And here's why. Because if you want to take that path, if you want to take that path of, I'm just going to try to be a good person, I'm going to take that path of accomplishment, and you want to try to live a life that is focused on being a really good person in order to gain God's acceptance. So if you want to take that path, then you need to know where the bar of expectation is. And the bar of expectation is 100% perfection. That's don't ever mess up. Don't ever fail. It's not be kind of good or mostly good or sometimes good or usually good. It's be always good, perfectly good, 100% of the time without failure. So as we continue to read this parable, one thing I want to encourage you is don't lose sight that when we continue reading, that this is not a story telling us to pile up our good deeds. It's not a story that tells us to help as many old ladies across the street as possible. And it's not a story telling us to do these things in order to impress Jesus or gain his acceptance. Because when we start thinking that way, we actually tend to overmoralize this story. Now, doing good things has an awesome purpose. And the Bible talks a lot about that. But that purpose is never so that we can save ourselves. Because realistically, we cannot save ourselves. And that's why Jesus came. Doing good things and loving people is the overflow of God's love for us. And so the lawyer asks, what do I need to do to get into heaven? And Jesus, in typical Jesus, Jesus faction, actually answers the question with another question. He says, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, you're the lawyer. You've memorized chunks of the Bible. You tell me. 
And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And here's the thing, when the lawyer answers that question, he's actually right. He's 100% right. In fact, he's quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. He's quoting this thing called the Shema. In fact, he actually answers the question the same way that Jesus answers it in a story in Matthew 22. So on paper, this lawyer is doing really well. He's getting it right. He's simply saying, love God and love people. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. That's what Jesus is saying. If you want to gain God's acceptance, if you want to have eternal life, to live forever with him in his kingdom, love God with everything you have all the time and love everyone else as much as you love yourself. It feels simple to understand, but not easy to live out. In fact, if we're being honest, it's impossible. And when Jesus said to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself, he meant, and what the lawyer knew he meant was, do that perfectly. Love God and love people, and yourself for that matter, without failing, from birth until death. Not most of the time, not when you feel like it, not better in comparison to the people around you, perfectly. How perfect? As perfect as God is perfect. As perfect as God is holy, loving, blameless, and perfect. Do that, do that, and you can be good with God. Now, most people would hear that and they would think, that's impossible. I mean, no one can do that perfectly. I know personally I haven't. I didn't even do it this week very well. And so if, if we thought that and we know that and we were saying for Jesus, we'd ask, so, okay, if that's the case and I can't do this perfectly, what are my options? We'd say, I've made some mistakes. I've messed up. Is it too late for me? Or someone like me to be saved and have eternal life, even though I haven't lived a perfect life? And that is when Jesus would say to this man, or he'd say to us if we asked that same question, he would look at us and he would go, well, not if, but when. When you make a mistake, when you fall short of what God has asked you to do, you're going to need some, someone to help you out, which is why I'm here, which is why I came. And Jesus would explain, you can't do it on your own, so let me take care of that for you. And that would be the honest and sane response to that question. And the Lord, he's not dumb. He knows that he's fallen short, that he hasn't loved God perfectly or loved his neighbor perfectly, so he tries to lawyer Jesus. He tries to figure out a way to finagle out of it so he still looks good and saves face. And he asks the second question. This is what he says, Luke 10, verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You know, from reading this, we see his motivation. It's right there in the text. The word justify is incredibly important in this story. The word justify literally means to be declared or revealed, to be entirely innocent or right. It means he's trying to make sure that he's proving that all of his actions are perfect. And in this case, the lawyer is actually trying to justify himself to Jesus. It's because he realizes he's fallen short of the bar. He's fallen short of those expectations. So what he does is he tries to shift gears and in doing so, he actually over-spiritualizes the story. If I'm being honest, this is what Christians are really good at. Christians do a really good job at over-spiritualizing things. And to be honest, it's usually motivated so that we don't have to do anything. See, the Lord doesn't take any issue with the concept of loving God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He doesn't take any issue with that. He doesn't actually ask any questions about that. In his mind, he's got that part down. He doesn't ask Jesus for clarification when it comes to loving God at all. The only clarification that he wants is in regard to loving people. And so he asks Jesus to clarify, okay, so who is my neighbor? 
And that feels like a very lawyer thing to do, right? What is the definition of is? What is the definition of neighbor? What does that really mean? And so Jesus knows the best way to teach this point is through a story, and that's when he actually tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. He tells it in response to the first question and the second question that this lawyer asks. And this is what he says. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, there's two quick things that the Lord would understand when hearing this story that it's important for us to know as well. First, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was, famous, was a famous road for bandits to hide out on and attack people. It was actually called the Way of Blood. So it was common knowledge in both of those cities, Jerusalem and Jericho, that if you went down that road and you were by yourself, there's a pretty good chance that you weren't going to make it, that you would get mugged or beaten or even murdered. And so in this story, either this guy is clueless or maybe he's actually looking for trouble in a bad part of town and got in over his head. But no matter what the scenario was, the guy shouldn't have been there in the first place, and it was a bad decision. The second thing that the lawyer would know and the people listening to this story would know is that Jerusalem was a city where the Jewish temple stood. And the temple is actually the center of the entire Jewish faith, and it stood on top of a hill in Jerusalem called Mount Zion. It was the highest point in the city, and so you went up to the temple in order to worship, to talk to priests, to hear from God. And so here's the thing. When you read the Bible... Or when we read a story and Jesus says they went up to the temple, and when we come across that phrase, what we know is that what Jesus is saying is they were going up to the temple to worship. They were on their way up to spend time with God. And so when he says, and a man was going down from Jerusalem, we know that means he was actually coming back from temple. The dude was walking home from church. And so he's coming down from worshiping God. And so culturally in context, what we know is that this man is coming back from worshiping God at some point, he ended up making a wrong turn, or maybe he made a bad decision, and he was on the wrong road, and he was beaten and left for dead. And a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now, a priest is a religious leader. In Greek, the word priest actually comes from the same word that means bridge builder. And that makes sense because during that time, a priest's job was actually be the connection between people and God. He was supposed to represent the people to God. He was an advocate for people. And so this story shows that, that he was actually in the temple doing his job. He was walking back from that. And when he finished, he's walking down the road, and he sees a man in the ditch who needed help. And in spite of everything he spent the whole day doing and teaching and preaching about, he walks to the other side of the road. But the story continues. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Again, a Levite is a religious leader. Levites worked alongside the priests in the temple. Think of them as worship leaders in a church. They lead songs and prayers. They remind people how good and compassionate and how loving God is. They would invite people into the presence of God. So in this story, you have a priest and a Levite, and they've been worshiping and preaching and trying to tell other people how good God is but in the story that Jesus tells, apparently after a long day of talking about God and leading people closer to God, on their way home from church, they see a man in need. Quite possibly someone who was actually in their congregation just a few minutes or a few hours earlier. And they see him beaten half to death, and they cross the street. And they walk to the other side. And one thing that we have to wrestle with is how many times have we done that in our own lives? We see somebody who is in pain. We see someone who is suffering. We see someone who is struggling with brokenness or struggling with whatever it may be. But instead of approaching them, we walk to the other side. 
And the reality is it's because we don't really want to be involved. Or maybe we think it's not our place to help. So instead of loving our neighbor, we actually leave them half dead. And a lot of times, we hope and pray that someone else comes along and reaches out. And so what makes you walk to the other side of the street? Maybe you think that you wouldn't be too much of a help anyways. Or you think, what can one person do? Or maybe you think you don't have the resources or time or talents to really make a difference. Meanwhile, the guy is bleeding out. So realistically, for this priest and this Levite, they see him, and it's an uncomfortable situation. Instead of taking care of his need, they actually walk to the other side of the street. And then an unlikely hero enters the story. And Jesus continues, but a Samaritan. I'm going to pause there really quickly. Now, this is really important because Samaritans at that time were considered the scum of the earth. Samaritans were thought of as the worst of the worst. Samaritans uh, were people that the Jewish people would avoid at all costs. And Jewish people actually thought very little of Samaritans so much so that they actually called them dogs. Their nickname in the Jewish culture was that these Samaritans were dogs. Jewish people believed that Samaritans were not worthy of God. And so Samaria was actually a place that they avoided. When they went on journeys, they'd walk around Samaria. And so here's the Samaritan, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now, in the story, we don't know where the Samaritan was headed. We don't know if he was coming to temple. We don't know if he was going from temple. He could have been heading home for dinner. He could have been heading home to tend to sheep. It could have been anything. But either way, he's on his way. He sees somebody in need, and he has compassion. This word compassion in the Greek, which is the original language of the New Testament, is actually this word called splagna. And splagna actually literally refers to your guts. And so what it's saying is that he had compassion, that he felt it in his guts. He felt it in his stomach. This is like when you see something wrong and you have to do something about it. It's like your guts get twisted inside of you. It's when someone else's pain goes from your head to your heart. And you see it, and then you feel it, and then you do something about it. Compassion isn't just a feeling. It's something that we do. So this guy has compassion and he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring, oil, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense that you have. And so this story is about a Samaritan that other people would think is worthless and worth nothing and scum of the earth and a dog. A story is about this man who gets on the same level and takes care of a stranger it's important to note that he didn't just hand him cash and send him on his way. It wasn't like he walked by, dropped a few coins down, and said, hey, good luck. He actually picks him up and puts him on his own donkey and walks him to the inn. And what's even more, I think, important in this story is that after he's there, he checks in on him. It wasn't like he just got him there and said, hey, good luck. He has this interaction with the innkeeper and says, hey, I'm going to come back. I'm going to pay any debt that this guy takes, no matter how long it takes for him to feel better. So then Jesus asks to the lawyer, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. He won't even say it's the Samaritan. He won't even call him out. But the Lord says it's the Samaritan. It's the one who had compassion. It's the man who stepped up and did something, who saw a need and met it, who took care of this dying man. And Jesus finishes the parable by saying this, go and do likewise. Now, this is a great story. 
You know, it's one that, that we've heard a lot of times or maybe we've heard it through scripture and in a church. Maybe we just heard it just being around in life and seeing someone in need and people think that's what a good Samaritan will do. But one thing about this story is we actually have no idea how the teacher of the law responds. You know, he asks these questions, but does he realize that eternity with God isn't something that is earned? Does he ever identify who his neighbor is? Does he go and do likewise? And we have no idea. But even though we have no idea how the teacher of the law actually responds, this shouldn't stop us from responding to this story and wrestling with the same two questions that he asks. And so hearing this story and knowing what's going on and reading this parable, one of the things that we have to do is we have to wrestle with these questions as well. Right, because parables were written so that we could see alongside, so that we can come alongside these stories. So let's come alongside these stories. The first question that we have to wrestle with is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And to be honest, it's way simpler than the lawyer makes it. It really is simple. The answer to this question is, just receive it. Just accept it. We know that we are saved by grace through faith, and the tangible expression of that is baptism. We are saved by grace. So that means when we mess up, which we will, we are not disqualified from our salvation because it's not about us, it's about Jesus. It doesn't matter the good things that we do. We're not gonna do anything bad enough to disqualify us from the salvation that Jesus wants to offer us, from the eternal life that Jesus wants to offer us. Paul writes in Romans 5, starting in verse six, he says this, you see, at just the right time, when you were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. He says, very rarely will anyone die for the righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were in that ditch, when we made that bad decision, when we were at our lowest, Christ died for us. And this, what Paul writes, he makes it very clear that it's not when you figure it all out, it's never written when you get your life together. It's never when you get rid of all these things. He's saying while we were still sinners, while we were still in the middle of it, while we were still dealing with it, while we are still in the midst of this brokenness and this pain and these things that we've caused or other people have caused, that's when Christ died for us. And so God, because he loves us, he sent Jesus to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. We can't save ourselves. In a few moments, we're gonna celebrate three more baptisms we had four two weeks ago. We have five last week after church. And these are people who have realized that we cannot be good enough or do good enough things to inherit eternity in heaven, but we can accept this free gift of grace that Jesus offers. We can put our faith in him. We can repent, which means to turn away from our old life, and we can get baptized. And it really is that simple. It's not one of those things where you get out of the water and eventually you have to take a test. It's not like you have to take a test before you do it anyways. There's not a quarterly checkup. There's not this thing that says that when you get out of that water, you have to be perfect because guess what? We're gonna mess up again. His grace is endless. One thing we know is that it never ceases and that's all we need. And if you're being honest, some of you are in your place when you've been trying to do good for years. You've been trying to do good and just be a good person. You've been trying to move those scales and you've been comparing yourself to other people thinking, at least I'm not as bad as they are. If you're being really, really honest with yourself, you'd say that as you've done that, you felt very unsatisfied. And the reason why is because you'll never meet the expectations. You'll never reach that bar because only Jesus can bridge that gap. And so if you're one of those people and you've been wrestling in that place and you've been struggling with that, let's talk. Come meet me after service. We're gonna talk about grace. We'll talk about baptism. 
talk about the fact that we don't actually have to do anything and do good things in order to earn eternity in heaven, which is so much better than anything else that we could experience. The second question that we have to wrestle with is this, who is my neighbor? So imagine you're in that place and you ask Jesus that question. Imagine you are that lawyer and you ask, who is my neighbor? And you begin to wonder, who exactly is that person? Who are my neighbors? Who are you hoping that Jesus won't say? Who are you hoping that Jesus won't point to? Who are you hoping that Jesus will leave off of your list? Who are you hoping that Jesus will exclude? If you were going to take a walk with Jesus and he started pointing out to people that needed to be your neighbor and you need to be a neighbor too, who would that be? You're not going to like this. It would be those people. It would be those people that when you encounter them, you go to the other side of the room. The people that you go to the other side of the restaurant, the people you go to the other side of the lobby, the people that you'd walk to the other side of the street to avoid. It's the people that you don't like. It's the people that you do. But it doesn't matter which side of politics they stand on. It doesn't matter what stance they take on issues that exist in our society. It doesn't matter what they look like. It doesn't even matter if they believe in the same God as you. Because here's the reality. You don't live next to their opinions. You live next to people. We live next to people. We live next to real people who are experiencing real pain, who are having real problems, and they all have needs. And every one of those people were made in God's image, regardless of what they think, regardless of what they do, regardless of what they believe. And what they think, do, and believe might be 100% wrong. It might be completely incorrect. But that never stopped Jesus from reaching out to me. And that certainly doesn't stop Jesus from reaching out to you. So those, those are your neighbors. You know, we've all been in a ditch. We've all felt broken and left for dead, totally unable to help ourselves. And God absolutely could have left us there. He could have walked to the other side of the street and he could have said, you've made a bad choice. And he could have told us, this is what you get. You had it coming. You should have known better. What were you thinking? You got what you deserve and you know that. And if Jesus did that to us, he would be 100% right. But that is not how Jesus approaches us, and that is not how much he loves us, because God gives us grace. We deserve to die in our sins, but he gives us grace. Grace is the only thing that brings dead people to life. Grace is the only thing that enables us to follow God's truth. And Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth, and he tells us to embody that, to live that out, to walk with our neighbors, to walk to the side of the street that we don't want to, to get on someone else's level and to take care of them, because that's what Jesus did for us. And so that's what we need to do for others. And ultimately, this whole story is about how God loves us and the overflow of that, how we should treat other people. The Samaritan who was considered ungodly and the scum of the earth and someone who couldn't even be around religious people was the one who actually represented Jesus better than anybody else. And so when we look at our own life, we have to wrestle with the fact that we can't do enough good things to earn God's love or earn God's affection. It's already there. It's for us for the taking. There's no caveat on it. We just have to accept it. And then as people, and specifically if you are a follower of Jesus, the response is loving your neighbor. Every single one of them. The people that you like, the people that drive you nuts, the people that you want to avoid as much as possible. Those, those are the people. Because that's how God looked at us. 
In no way did we deserve the love and grace that he offers us, but that's what he does. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that, um, that we get to see another story of, of how good you are. Um, God, that over the last two weeks, we've learned that even when we wander away, you pursue us. God, that even when we're not perfect, you love us. God, I just pray that as we wrestle with that idea and we wrestle with this doing good culture that we live in and just trying to be a good person, God, ultimately we realize that it'll never be enough. We'll never feel satisfied. But God, the only way that we can feel satisfied and the only way that we can feel complete is through you. And doing good is a result of that. And doing good is a result of the grace that we can experience in our own lives. God, help us love our neighbor. God, I know there are a lot of people on my list that I don't want to talk to. God, I know I'm not the only one that feels that way. So give us an opportunity this week to really to love them and care for them, to show up and take their, care of their needs and help them in their pain and their suffering. God, thank you for the ways that you loved us. Thank you for the ways that you picked us up out of that ditch. We love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.